Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Frances Mays, author of Under the Tuscan Sun and other books, including her new Italian travel book, See You in the Piazza. Frances is here at Bookmarks for an event and agreed to talk with me before we head out to our breezeway for some food and wine in a thoroughly Italian afternoon. Frances, welcome to Winston-Salem and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you. It's wonderful to be at Bookmarks. You've been described as a cultural emissary to Italy. What, what first attracted you to Italy and why Italy instead of France or Chile or Thailand or someplace else? Oh, Italy. I <laughs> studied Renaissance art and Renaissance architecture, so I really wanted to see all the things I had just seen up on slides in mm, the classroom. Right, yeah. So that was initially why I went, but as soon as I got there, I saw how much fun they were having there <laughs> and was kind of taken immediately with the vivacity of Italian life. And I think that's what really draws me the most, although I still go there for the, you know, the food, the wine, the art, the beauty, yeah. all that. It's uh, the way the people live, the way they interact with uh, life up front, mm -hmm. uh, not anything held back. It's uh, just an immediacy of living that I really respond to. When you say you studied Renaissance art and architecture. Where did you study? Those classes were at Princeton. Mm -hmm. I was auditing. My husband was in graduate school there, and I had already graduated from college where I studied English, but I just fell in love with these uh, beautiful, beautiful, intense courses. Yeah. And, kind like, of set me on a different path. It like, was kind of in a new gear. I can remember so well discovering on my first trip, especially to the European continent, I'd been to the UK before, the difference between seeing that painting on a slide and seeing it, the real thing. You know? Yes, um, it's, see it's it remarkable. come to life. Next week, we're starting our River Run International Film Festival here in Winston-Salem. And um, I'm, I've been talking to the the coordinator of that about moderating a panel about turning books into films. So I can't resist, before we start to talk about your new book, asking you a little bit about Under the Tuscan Sun and how for you as an author was that process of transition from, from page to screen? When you sign off on an option, you know that your book is going to be um, translated into film. Yeah. And my book was kind of literary, it was quiet. So I knew they were going to do big things with it to make <laughs> it work on the big screen. So I was totally prepared for a change. And I really liked what they did with the movie. I think mm -hmm. they kept to the basic story, the core of the story, but um, the beautiful scenes with Raul Bova and all that <laughs> were just a bonus for me. I enjoyed the whole process yeah. um, and, and knowing all along that they were two different things. Books and movies, yeah, they're never yeah. the same. Often the book is better, uh, but in this case, I think it's just different. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that you use the word translation because that to me, I think, sort of hits the nail on the head, both in terms of, you know, we've both had our works translated into other languages and that's something you have no control over as an author, um, but you also just sort of have to accept that it is a, it is a different thing in German or Czech than it is in, 
English and it's a different yes. thing on the screen than it is yes, on the page. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, Under the Tuscan Sun is now in 54 languages. Oh, wow. yeah. And I remember at first when the translations started coming out, I tried desperately to find out whether the translation was good. Yeah. But you really can't go there. No. You, you have no way of knowing whether I, the, the, the only attempt good. I've ever made is um, to. If, if there's an excerpt from the translation, you know, on the publisher's website or something, to run that through Google Translator back oh, into English. That's a good idea. And it, but it's not a particularly satisfying exercise. <laughs> so in Under the Tuscan Sun and in See You, See you in the Piazza, your new book, um, the hero, if you will, is a woman named Frances Mays. Is that person identical to you or a somewhat fictionalized version of you or, or sort of something in between those, those two? No, it's my books are first-person memoir, mm -hmm. except for the two novels I've written. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, they're um, they're pretty much memoir. Yeah. And and how do you find that process of writing memoir different from the novel writing process? Oh, it's so much easier. Oh. The novel is difficult. You have to have a plot. You have to have <laughs> characters. These characters have to be different. I find novel writing uh, really a challenge. I grew up reading. I grew up in a very small town in South Georgia, and all I did was read my whole childhood. And I always assumed I would write novels and novels. But actually, I turned to poetry first, mm. and my whole career for the first half of my life was totally in poetry. Yeah. I've written six books of poetry and a big textbook, The Discovery of Poetry. Mm -hmm. My husband's a poet, so... We still kind of live and breathe poetry, but when I started writing Under the Tuscan Sun, it happened spontaneously. I was in a new country, learning the language, learning the culture, learning the lay of the land, the food, and um, my lines just kept getting longer and <laughs> more out of control and going off into the next page, and suddenly I realized I'm writing prose, and it was just one of those strange occurrences where it happened. I didn't mean for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. I meant to keep writing poetry. Yeah. I taught poetry. I was in that world. And then I loved writing these short essays for, that became Under the Tuscan Sun. Yeah. And I've never gone back to poetry. Yeah. Right now, I have, it's the first time in four years I haven't had a deadline. And I've been thinking, maybe I will try to write a poem. Write a poem. So tell us about your new book, See You in the Piazza. What's it about? See You in the Piazza. It's new places to discover in Italy. And it was so much fun to write. I was on vacation down in the south of Italy, down in the uh, heel of the boot, and was discovering these really tiny towns. Mm -hmm. And somehow it kind of sparked a rediscovery of spontaneity in travel for me. And I got, while I was down there on that vacation, I got the bright idea, wouldn't it be fun to travel around in Italy and just go to the places in between? Mm -hmm. So that was really the impetus of the book. And indeed, that is what happened. I really did dis rediscover kind of a pleasure in travel that was uh, more, much more spontaneous, much more uh, off-road and many more kind of unexpected encounters with people. And it was just really a pleasure to write this book. Mm -hmm. It practically wrote itself. 
I was just traveling around and taking notes and basically though um, besides just go here go there see this see that trying to go into the art and the history and architecture and the food the wine mm -hmm. all these things I'm also looking kind of in the southern sense of um, what is this place really all about yeah. what is it that shapes the people who live here from the powers in the landscape the vibrations in the ground the history of the place the what's growing there what all the forces that come to bear on people are in that place I was trying to find that mm -hmm. or to find some kind of defining moment in a place like for me in Torino it was uh, connecting with the work of Cesare Pavese yeah, yeah. and seeing that place kind of through his work through his life I love when you you found the actual house that he had lived in. Is that right? Yes, and, I stayed and was there. It an inn? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was wonderful. Um, just trying to find something that defines the place, like yeah. in Orsara in Puglia. Puglia has the best bread in the world. Oh. It's just amazing bread, and finding out uh, the whole culture of growing wheat, the all kinds of. Um, sourdough risers, oh. uh, the way that it's baked, these medieval bread ovens, it just came to me that bread was something really essential about Puglia yeah. and yeah. looking all through Puglia at what kinds of breads they had was, that was Puglia for me. You call Italy the endless surprise. Um, what surprised you most when you were on this journey working on this book? Uh, thousands of surprises. <laughs> it's. Um, I think it comes from the fact that Italy was only unified in 1861. Yeah. Before yeah. that, it was papal states, it was feudal states, it was mountain villages, and they were all isolated from each other, and people couldn't travel. You couldn't leave the papal states without a passport. Mm. So um, the diversity of Italy comes straight out of that history. Yeah. So it's an endless surprise. You go north to south and you're like in different world 50 times. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is so uh, amazing to me that these unique, very particular places have endured because actually Italy never really unified. Yeah. It's still kind of yeah. anarchistic and uh, so many dialects. So I think it's the most varied country in the world. I think that's fascinating because I think if you ask you know, the average American on the street, for instance, to define Italian food or Italian art, they would have a very specific notion of what that meant. And yet what you're saying is that the whole notion of Italy is at, at best a modern and at worst a fictional construct, really. Yes. Um, From north to south, it's a different world. But even, say, in Tuscany, um, the variety from town to town is astonishing. They have a different colored stone, they have their different artists, they have their own pasta, they have their own style of building a mm -hmm. chimney, just yeah. everything. Yeah. You drove around Italy for about a year and a half. Yes. Uh, obviously, a lot of your readers are not going to have a year and a half to take off and tour around Italy. So how would you suggest that somebody who has a week or two weeks or a month and, but wants to get beyond Venice and Rome and Florence mm -hmm. and sort of the famous places, how would you suggest that they approach the task of finding Italy? Yes. 
Uh, my book's divided into regions, mm -hmm. and I think, say it's your first trip to Italy, you've just got to see Venice and Rome and yeah. Florence. Yeah. You have yeah. to, but leave some time for the little places, the places where you really authentically connect with uh, the people and with the place itself. And traveling off-season, of course, is yes. always the best. But if you can't, still go. But the joy of these smaller places is they don't get overrun in July and August. Yeah, yeah. They're still themselves. And um, I think um, planning a trip, if you dip into the book, you find at least 30 places you have to see. I mean, every chapter I would go, OK, that's where I want to go. And then I'll, next chapter, go in a minute, that's where I want to go. <laughs> Well, but I love what you say about finding the smaller places. And my wife and I traveled extensively, but we have a, a cottage in rural Oxfordshire that we spend a few weeks in every year. Um, and we found that the, the longer we stay connected to that place, the more we appreciate. I mean, we like to go to London and we like to go to Paris, but we, we really appreciate the, the smaller places, the quieter places. Yes. And that, as you said, the, the, in some ways, the culture um, is almost more alive there. I mean, these big cities are so so international and and so modern and moving forward. But the but in the smaller places, you can mm -hmm. sort of find that that quiet ancient space. Yes, and the surprise to me is the cultural life in these small towns. It's absolutely knocks your socks off to see their list of what's going on there yeah. in that season. Yeah. Their concerts, their lectures, their dance programs. It's just fantastic to me that the humanist tradition in Italy is still yeah. so vibrant. And these small towns are just alive. And my town, Cortona, I think their cultural life would rival Cleveland or Minneapolis yeah. or yeah. a big city yeah. in America. And you go to these little towns, and they're having big festivals That's and great. great things going on. I love this from your author's note. You write, you may choose to read the sections randomly. And it reminds me of those middle grade choose your own adventure books, you know, where you can kind of <laughs> skip around. And it, it, Do you think that's a good metaphor for, for the right kind of travel? Choose your own adventure? Yes. Decide at the end of each chapter where you're going to go next? Yes. As spontaneous as you can be, it's more fun. If everything's planned out, that can be relaxing too, but it just doesn't uh, hit your sense of adventure. And I like reading books from back to front often. <laughs> I'm not much on uh, suspense, so I sometimes look at the last page so I'll know where I'm going. Yeah. And this book is like that. You can just dip into it. I think... Um you know, when my wife and I travel, a lot of times our mantra is, you know, have a, have a reasonable plan and then be willing to divert from that plan at a moment's notice when, a something, good, when you see something over there that looks more interesting. You know. <laughs> um, so, so this is slightly off the subject of writing, but I'm going to ask this on behalf of everyone who has ever traveled, because one of your main pieces of advice that you give is you say, travel light. Oh, yes. So do you have any tips on how we can achieve that? <laughs> Buy the lightest suitcase you can possibly find. It's really irritating when you look at luggage and they don't tell you how much it weighs. Oh, yeah. I have located the lightest little suitcase. I only do carry-on. I don't check luggage. Mm -hmm. I just don't like to, and I don't want to overpack because I've seen so many people getting off trains 
two big suitcases oh, yeah. each and they're practically crying because they're dealing with this luggage and you think what on earth do they have in those huge bags you don't really need that much just need some lightweight versatile clothes sticking to a color take as few shoes as possible but like dressing up an outfit is easy you just get a really nice necklace and bracelet and some gold shoes <laughs> yeah. and you're ready to go <laughs> we my wife and i went to um bellagio on lake como uh last spring it's beautiful been, been so, oh it was lovely we just the air turns we, blue we had evenings. we had never really had a honeymoon and after about 12 hours in bellagio she turned to me and said i think this is our honeymoon <laughs> 20 24 years into marriage um but but we saw these people getting off the boat with these huge suitcases and there you know you you don't hop in a taxi and go to your hotel you go up these cobbled stairways that go up and yes. up and up and up and I thought oh these poor people having to lug this luggage yes. up and up and up and the other thing mm. is the wheels break yeah. on those cobbles yeah. you just you need to be as light as possible for that reason because if you've got one of those big bags and your wheels are broken you're really in for it <laughs> you're I would describe your writing style not only as personal but sometimes it to me it almost feels stream of consciousness um, do you can you talk a little bit about your process do you while you're on this trip do you, and you sit you tell us oh I sat down at a cafe and, and wrote some are you writing what we're reading are you just taking notes that then get expanded later on how, how does that that process I'm work writing you? as I'm seeing I think it's a habit of mine possibly from a history of writing poetry but when I'm looking at something I'm also thinking of how it would be described and by described I mean um, my goal is to recreate in words the experience so that it is palpable for the reader mm -hmm. and I'm very um, focused on imagery I like very much to use as many senses as possible when I'm writing about a place yeah. but I um, I try to write as I go along but it's not always possible because right. sometimes yes. you just exhausted or you've had too much wine or whatever <laughs> so I depend a lot now on uh, the voice notes on my phone mm. as I'm walking around I sometimes just start talking to the phone yeah. and I take a lot of photographs before I became dependent on these devices I used to just depend on little notebooks which I still keep yeah. but um, I've enjoyed the photography aspect of um, of this kind of writing and um, I do a whole lot of research mm -hmm. and when I'm in little towns I go in the tourist offices all over Italy the government sponsors a tourist office in almost every town and those people are it's their career they're knowledgeable they know the place they will even go with you to places and take you and you learn so much about places from really taking advantage of these tourist offices they have maps they like in the north in the Dolomites you go in different offices and they have these beautiful trails uh, maps of trails for hikes mm -hmm. and the little refugee where you can stop and have lunch and somebody's playing the accordion and <laughs> these things you just discover are not through any guidebook but by making personal contact yeah. And they almost always speak English in yeah. these offices. Yeah. You talked about engaging all the senses, and you write sumptuously and scrumptiously about food. <laughs> um, and my first thought was, did, 
when you were editing this book, did you constantly have to run back to the kitchen? Um, <laughs> but but beyond that, what what is the the specifics of the food of a town or a region? say about its people and how do you yes. see that differing in Italy from from here at home? Yes, there's such a consciousness of where food is from and when I'm in a restaurant I always try to talk to the chef. Mm -hmm. um, it's just they like it, they love being you know complimented yeah. on their food yeah. and I think that the Italians have maintained such a connection with the land, they're all foragers and I see that as a difference from any place I've known. Yeah. In the spring right now, they are all over the place looking for the little green almonds, what the almond is before it becomes an almond. It's this little fuzzy pod, and they love those. Mm. It's an acquired taste or yeah. one you have to be born for. But people are out looking for that. They're looking for the wild asparagus. In the fall, it's the mushrooms, it's the truffles. All year, it's the wild greens, and everybody knows these things. Mm -hmm. It's just it shows how they love the land, and that definitely translates into all each region's kitchens. They yeah. they know what's growing and how to use it. It's it's uh, fun, really fun to go north to south, all the way down, and see how different it is. Like. In Calabria, they're finding this little tiny brown hyacinth bulb. Mm. Who would think of eating a hyacinth? But these little hyacinth bulbs sautéed with onions and sausage, it's their thing. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. That's true all over Italy. They have their special kinds of greens, their special uh, fruits and special apples that have to be picked at a certain time and laid out on straw mats to ripen. and. There's a big enthusiasm for food everywhere. That's why that most of the restaurants are good. Um, the Italians just, they won't put up with bad food. Yeah, yeah. We, we both live in North Carolina, and we both live part-time in a foreign country. Uh, what for you is the connection between your life here in North Carolina and your life in Tuscany? And if you could take one thing from Tuscany and transplant it to Hillsboro, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's quite a question. Um, I just go back to people. I, when I'm here, I miss people in Tuscany, and when I'm in Tuscany, I miss yeah. my friends here. Yeah. So that, that's you know, kind of the main thing that makes you ache. But other than that, the two places are so different. Uh, they, it kind of it's like stepping off a cliff when I go there. Yeah. The other place just fades away. And same yeah. thing when I come back here. Yeah. Do you find that? Yeah, I, I mean, we think we have a similar experience. We have to, it, I think it helps you learn how to live in the moment. Mm -hmm. Because if you're just thinking about, if when I'm here, all I'm thinking about is my friends in England and what I could be doing in England, then I'm not gonna be enjoying here and vice yes. versa, you know. Yes. So you do have to kind of ruthlessly forget the other place for a little while, yes, you know. you do. Uh, at the same time, I do find similarities between Tuscany and, and the American South. Mm -hmm. I felt it right yeah. from the beginning. It's not just the hot, hot summers and the, you know, the watermelon and <laughs> the way of entertaining outside in the summer and things like that, but it just seems like that generosity and openness of the Italians is something I've always experienced in the South, that yeah. hospitality yeah. and 
uh, welcoming the stranger. Uh, also, on a darker side, I find the Tuscans behind their or beyond their generosity and warmth and friendliness, there is a real privacy mm. and kind of a fatalism that I have also always found to be true in the South. I think yeah. Southerners are deeply fatalistic yeah. people. Yeah. And the, not that it, the other side, the friendliness and hospitality, not that it's a mask, it's just part of it. It's like you go so far with people and that's it. Yeah. Unless you really know them very well. We've heard a lot in the news in the last week or so about the uses and abuses of wealth. And I was struck by your descriptions of even the smallest villages that incorporate the results of what you call deep pockets, fabulous churches, beautiful architecture, frescoes. And then at the same time, the, the, um, the presence of the working class and the way that they, the, the farmers and the, and the craftsmen have shaped um, the food and the culture of, of the particular town. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the relationship between sort of the, the moneyed classes and the working classes and how it shaped some of these places in Italy? It's always interested me that um, the working class and the uh, aristocrats, the upper class, don't have the same feeling of a hierarchy that they do here. Hmm. It seems like the class distinctions are definitely there, but... Um, the workers aren't intimidated. They're not, you know, worshipful or right. uh, they're not condescended to. They're really kind of taken on the same plane. And mm -hmm. I've always really liked that about Italy. The other thing is, I think, that shocks most Americans who come there is the high standard of living the Italians have. Mm -hmm. They don't, even if they don't necessarily have a lot of money, they live well. Yeah. They travel, they have bella figura clothes, maybe not that many of them, but they, they go out, they enjoy themselves, they are, they are going to their summer houses. Even people you wouldn't think would have second properties mm -hmm. often do. And often uh, they have, um, you know, a lot of inherited things like olive groves and their wealth might not be that great, but the, the shocking thing is how well people live and how they know how to live in time. Yeah. They work, they do their work, but they're not obsessed by work. They still take the time to drop in on Wednesday afternoon and stay out late on Thursday night. Yeah. And it seems like they've got their priorities mostly I'm sure in Milano there are people running around like rats. But, well, sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, no. In general, I, I've found um, that trip into the piazza every morning is something most people do. Yeah, yeah. My book, See You in the Piazza, is named that because of that very thing. It's um, when you leave somebody's house at night, it's see you in the piazza, mm -hmm. see you in the piazza. It speaks to that intense sense of community yeah, yeah. that still exists in rural Italy and uh, makes life there such a, um, a rich and a varied experience for those people yeah, who live there. And I think there. It's, it's interesting to try to create those sort of piazza spaces in a modern American city. I think of bookmarks as a space like that. Yes. I mean, that was one of the things we wanted to do in, 
in creating this space was to have a place for community for, yes for people to just Brings come together people. and hang out and mm -hmm. say hello and you know if you if you see an author that's great if you read a buy a book that's great but also if you just have a conversation you know, yes. with, with somebody that you wouldn't have seen if you had just stayed at home and gone to work and then gone back home you know? yes mm. and the silly thing now is how everyone is ordering things online mm -hmm. which means they don't go out into their town as much yeah. as they did yeah. before and it was bad enough when the shopping centers started gutting the downtowns of yeah. all the yeah. beautiful american small towns yeah. One of the things, I think if I answered that question I asked you a little while ago about what would I bring back from our little village in the Cotswolds, is, you know, we're in a village of 700 people, but we have a village shop. And not, most of the small villages don't have shops anymore, but, but we mm. do have a shop. And that means that almost everybody in the village, sometime during the day, is going to walk down to the shop to get a loaf of bread, a yes. newspaper, something to eat, a bag of potato chips, whatever. You know, And so you see people in the street, and they're yes. not just getting into their car and driving to the supermarket. Uh, and even if you don't, even if you just say hello, there's this sense that you're living in a community with other people. You're not yes. just in your cottage and then exactly. down at the Tesco. You know? And you uh. say good morning. And uh, in Italy, going into the piazza in the morning, you might say, buongiorno, and the Italian is going to say, buongiorno, like you're the person <laughs> they most wanted to see in the world. Right. <laughs> it makes you feel good. <laughs> Every now and then you present your reader with these lines, and maybe this is, comes from your, your place as a poet, but these lines which to me just beg to be copied down, and so I would copy them down. Uh, so I want to I read a couple of them to you and just see if you can sort of comment or expand on them. Uh, one of them is, things have a way of working out in Italy. They do. <laughs> it's, it's something to learn there. First you hear no. This, I'm thinking particularly of uh, questions about restoration. No, you can't do that. No, that's not allowed. It's never going to happen. Or you show the, your idea to the architect. He says, that's a terrible idea. But by the time it all works out, he thinks your idea was his idea. And <laughs> the commune has said, you can do this. It, anytime you have a flat tire and everything's closed, sooner or later you find somebody to fix your tire. And it's gotten to be that I have relaxed a lot more around eventualities of traveling because it's going to work out. Yeah. <laughs> this is another one of my favorites. By the way, I think this quote should inspire the title of your next book. Um, the quote is, Italy is where you taste time. And I immediately went, I would buy a book called Tasting Time. <laughs> but well, what do you mean that Italy is where you taste time? I guess because they have so much of it, so yeah. much time, that people seem at home in time. It's like I was talking about earlier. They can come over on Wednesday night and have dinner and not care that it's midnight. Um, it just feels like time is a river and you're in it. It's not that you are looking at your watch, that you're fighting time. You're, what time is it? What's my next appointment? It's just a much more natural relationship with time. You're not pushing it, pushing it. You're mm -hmm, in it. Mm -hmm. I noticed, you know, where we, where we live in England, you, you're reminded anywhere in Europe. You're reminded of how young America is. But you know, we can on the on the way to doing errands, we can drive past a, a 3,500 year old Neolithic stone circle. We can drive past an Iron Age hill fort or a Roman villa. You know, and that sort of puts your own 
lifespan and time and a little bit of perspective it and, does. and makes you go, well, you know, maybe I'm not really all that. Yes. <laughs> we look out at uh, Lago Trasimeno where Hannibal defeated the Romans in mm -hmm. 217 BC. Yeah, yeah. So you live with that fact every day. So you're much more conscious of long time. Was it the Mayas who talked about long time? Yeah, and, I think so. Yeah, yeah long time is, um, it's, it's, it's different because it lets you ride. You write about, you say the sidewalks roll up in the afternoon. And I remember being in Rome and thinking, you know, you would see a store that said it was open from 10 to 6. And I, after a few days, I realized that meant we might come into the store by 11. We'll definitely be out back asleep between 1 and 3. <laughs> And if we're enjoying ourselves, we could be here till 10 o'clock tonight. Yes, yeah. but, yes. but can you talk a little bit about how the, how the pace of just daily life in Italy differs from here in North Carolina? Well, that pausa, that one to four when everything closes, means that the day has fallen into three sections. Mm -hmm. And you get some of the best hours of the day to yourself. Yeah. And the morning, very busy, but things don't usually open till about 10. So that's 10 to 1, and then reopen, 4.30, you've got two or three more hours. So the day is actually, working day is shorter, yeah. and you get that time to yourself. I think it's very civilized, and I'm so glad it's enduring. Yeah. I was yeah. surprised even in Milano last summer to see that a lot of the smaller shops still close. Yeah. You'd think that it would erode in a big city, but uh, a lot of them still do close. I think it, it just um, gives, you, gives you some creative time. Yeah. I love reading your descriptions of, of old buildings and of, and of houses in particular because I always, when I go into a, a new village or a town, I'm just fascinated by the houses and to try to sort of imagine how people live there. Um, but you have one uh, that really struck me. Uh, I, kept, I kept noticing this in a couple of places, and that is in a, in a sleepy town in Italy on a hot summer's day, Peeling paint on a house is somehow this symbol of great charm to me in the way you write. And yet, the exact same peeling paint on a house in North <laughs> right. Carolina, we would all say is a sign of neglect. I right. think. So, how, you know, talk about what, what do you think we learn from that dichotomy, from those two different ways of looking at something as simple as paint peeling off the side of a house? I guess just over time, they acquire a patina that you finally recognize as romantic. Yeah. Uh, a relative of mine early on came and went to Florence. He came back to our house in the evening and he said, why don't they keep up their buildings around here? And we thought, he hasn't been here long enough to really see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's difficult as, as tourists and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to spend time living in a foreign country, not just being a tourist there. And you touched, you touched on this, I think, a couple of places. It's difficult to imagine people when you're in these beautiful towns, imagining that people actually live here and work here and vacuum here and have their cars serviced here and these sort of daily daily routines in, in the Cotswolds or in Italy. Can you talk a little bit about the difference as you've experienced it between being a tourist and being a resident in a foreign country? Well, they're tourists and they're tourists. I mean, some people go through and they're only there to, you know, have a big boozy lunch and taste a lot of wine and walk through the piazza and do some shopping. Those are the tourists that I'm not writing for. I'm writing for a, a, someone who is a cultural tourist. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the richness that you can get from 
paying attention to the literature of each place, um, the history of each place. It just makes layers and layers and layers rather than just breezing through somewhere. Um, in Puglia, I read uh, Patience Gray, Honey from a Weed. She was a very early visitor to Puglia, and she lived very primitively with her partner, who was a sculptor. She became a real forager. She had written cookbooks in mm. England. But reading her life there and her, that identification she made with the very basic things of the land made such a difference in the way I saw Puglia. So I think having a book as a companion in each region or mm. many books, see in Sardinia, in yeah. Sardinia, the, the Leopard in Sicily, Cesare Pavese in Torino, Thomas Mann in Venice, the, the literary aspect is, makes a huge difference to me. Yeah. This is a hugely broad question, and we could probably talk about this for the whole length of the show and then some, but I'm just curious to, to hear your gut reaction to this, and that is, why should we travel? Well, um, I've just always been curious to see who they were in this mm. other place, how they live, what, what, is, what is the other part of the world. It's, for me, it's just curiosity and uh, a way to expand my own horizons. Mm -hmm. I know that some people travel and it only confirms their prejudices. Yeah. So I think the, the whole sense to me is being open to the wonders of this marvelous little tiny bubble we're yeah. floating around on in this huge universe and to be able to see as much of it as I can. Yeah. I, I want to end with a line from your preface that I think would be a great mantra for travelers. I think we should just put it on a sticker on our suitcases maybe. And that is this, places give us such gifts if we are ready to receive them. Can you expand on that a little yes, bit? Yes, that's kind of what I was just thinking of, um, that if you're open to it, you find the surprises, you reach out for the connections that you possibly can make. And uh, the more you know, uh, the more willing and open it seems like you are to having something significant happen to you in a place. Mm -hmm. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and some insight into you and, and the way you write. So if you're ready for the speed round, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Luminous. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? It. <laughs> Where is your favorite place to write? My studio on the third floor of my house in Italy, Bramasoli. Where could you never write? I can write anywhere. Mm. I can write on the plane, in the car. I don't know, I can't write while I'm cooking. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I don't ignore grammar. I think it's uh, your friend. Mm -hmm. What was the first book you remember reading? I love the series of books called The Twins, the Polish Twins, the Mexican oh, Twins, yeah, yeah. the Swedish Twins. And I read them when I was really little. I think it is what lit a match in my shoe to become a traveler. Yeah. <laughs> what are you reading now? 
I'm reading uh, Paul Thoreau's essays. What book would you like to have written? W.G. Seaball's Austerlitz. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I would like to write a book on Heraclitus. Hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I love your book. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place, an independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Francis Mays, whose book, See You in the Piazza, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Francis, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 15th and last day of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to another New York, North Carolina best-selling author, Anne B. Ross, about her novel, Miss Julia Takes the Wheel. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>